and they've had a run in a couple of places in Australia, but uh, the luck just wasn't with them in those. You know, um, I think the most prominent one that people would read about was at Warnervale in the Central Coast in New South Wales. Uh, the new council created was called the Central Coast Council decided that they would not proceed with that airport development plan and as a consequence cancelled all the leases and had to walk away and it was pretty politically messy at the time and the, and uh, AAI was a bit of a casualty of the political fallout around all of that and there was a lot of bad press. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 64 of On The Step With That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. To get in contact with me, my email is dan at thatmallardguy.com or you can follow me on Instagram, send me a message at thatmallardguy. On The Step is a proud supporter of the Seaplane Pilots Association and the Seaplane Pilots Association of Australia. Have you got your Seaplane Pilots Association membership, folks? They do so much for the industry. They give so much back to us seaplane pilots. So make sure you join up to your local seaplane pilot association. It is much appreciated, that's for sure. Now, are you an Australian pilot who has always wanted to try seaplane flying? Well, I am now offering floating hull training up here in Darwin. The approximate seven-hour course includes three seaplane long theory briefings, flight experience in rivers, a freshwater lake, and some open area ocean, all in the amazingly fun Lake Buccaneer flying boat. Now, for those who have already got some seaplane experience with a float plane endorsement, you'll find the transition to flying the hull challenging and fun as you lower your eye line from sitting out of the water to just on top of it. And for those who might not have the time or money for a full endorsement, my seaplane pilot for a day experience is a great introduction to water flying. Now, getting your floating hull endorsement is a great way to expand your own skills and experience, so get in contact with me to discuss training options via email or Instagram today. Now, I just want to give a quick shout-out to those patrons who have continued to support On The Step for such a long time. You guys and girls are amazing to be able to chip in a few bucks a month just recognizing the hard work that goes into running these interviews and this podcast and continuing it on into the future. So I really appreciate the support those people uh, helping out on Patreon provide. To everyone else who has given a five-star review of the show, sent emails or messages saying how much you love hearing these stories, thank you for your support also. It really does mean a lot. All right, jumping into it now, we have a massive episode today, folks. Uh, this one I've been lining up for a long time. and I, In fact, I think this has to be one of my most interesting chats I've done so far as we look into the excitement and planning of a huge aviation business proposal that is certainly getting the ball rolling for sure. Dan Webster is the CEO of Amphibian Aerospace Industries or AAI and has the incredibly challenging but super exciting job of bringing back to life one of the world's most popular and capable flying boats, the Grumman Albatross. Now, there's been a lot of talk lately about this project with news articles, videos, multiple interviews available online, and with any ambitious project such as this, there is certainly anticipation and expectation along with scrutiny. And as much as AAI have a cohort of people passionately getting on board in a show of support, 
they certainly have their doubters as well. So I made sure that along with a variety of questions about the project itself, I didn't let go of the opportunity to ask Dan some of the harder questions either. Let's head down to the manufacturing facility. Walking the line between assembly stations, we'll head to the shiny aircraft on the ramp that's just rolled off the production line. Climbing on board our 28-seat vessel, we'll taxi it out to the runway and prepare for takeoff. Hearing the Pratt's roar and the gear retract, we'll set our sights on the approaching Darwin Harbour, descending to splash down on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. Alrighty, welcome to On The Step, the CEO of Amphibian Aerospace Industries, Mr. Dan Webster. How are you going, Dan? Good, thanks, Dan. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Very good. A couple of Dans having a chat about seaplanes. I love it. Mate, I want to say, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time out. You must be one of the busiest guys in the seaplane industry at the moment after everything's been kicking off the last few months. And for you to take uh, a bit of time out of your busy schedule, mate, to talk to us seaplane aviation fanatics, uh, really appreciate that time, mate. Oh, it, look, it's a great pleasure, Dan. You know, getting to talk to people who are already in the industry and working with seaplanes, there's not a lot of them globally. And uh, it's great to have people actually can understand what you're talking about and see the same vision that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, um, like I do with everyone, like obviously we're going to talk about a lot of stuff uh, coming up in this episode, all about this exciting project with the Albatross uh, that everyone, I think, around Australia and the world is is now got their eyes fixed on. This is a, a huge announcement that you guys have made you know, partnership with the NT government and, and the fact that the ball is now really rolling forward uh, with this turbine albatross. So everyone's so excited about it, mate. But like I do with everyone, I, I want to know a little bit more about you, mate, and um, a little bit about your background to start off with. So can you kind of share about, you know, was, was aviation something that you always got into? Was flying boats something you were into in the early days? Or, you know, where does, where does Dan's story start? Well, I suppose for me, I've always been interested in aviation for a very long time. My father was actually in army aviation in Vietnam. And when, when I was still at school, he was actually an air traffic controller at uh, Oki Aviation Centre. So we used to go out there a lot and see the helicopters, you know, the Kiowas and the Sioux and the, the Porters and the, you know, the old army aviation stuff. And, and I was always fascinated with it. But I, would, I never had the maths or the background to get into it as a young guy. And I came to it late. I mean, I was around it a lot in the army. You know, as you, army guys would know, you spend a lot of time being cargo on various platforms all over the place. Uh, and so aviation is very much part of your life, but you're not necessarily an aviation person. Yep. After I left, left the army and I went to Boeing, I started to get into the periphery of it. And then through particularly my time in Albert, I started to see a lot more about aviation systems and, and parts uh, of the aviation sector, and that's how I actually got connected to Qua, who's the the chairman who set uh, Amphibian Aerospace Industries up. But that that's how I came to it. Um, I've always sort of been a person on the periphery of it. Yeah, right. So you mentioned the army there. You had a, a fairly long and distinguished career, mate, in uh, in the Australian Army. There, can you tell us a bit what your what your roles were there, and and did you learn any skills? I guess in the army for the management positions that you've kind of put yourself into after leaving? Uh, so, yeah, look, the, the, 
the army really was the thing that kicked me off. Uh, before I joined the army, you know, it was back in the days in the early 80s when employment was really difficult in Australia. Getting a start was really hard. I hadn't done well at school. So I did a little bit of trade training at a, at a technical and further education college in Toowoomba. And on the basis of that, got accepted into the army to do uh, radio training and become a radio, what was called a radio mechanic then and became an electronic technician. Um, and that really was the launching pad for me, was, was my career in the Army. The technical side's one thing, but what the Army teaches you is, is the ability to take something that's real chaos and pull some order out of it and make a plan. And we used to have, you know, an, an enormous amount of training in planning your work and working your plan. And in something as complex as this, that skill uh, is the central thing. You know, you know that you're not the technical expert on everything uh, by a long shot, and that's that's one of the biggest things is recognising you don't know everything, uh, and then being able to pull in and uh, organise and help the technical experts to actually bring a solution to the table. And that's one of the things that the army really, I think, the training I got in the army was that being able to organise things and bring a whole bunch of technical people together to produce a result. And in business, that's a fantastic skill to have. And I think, you know, a lot of people who've had careers in the army bring that to the work that they do. Yeah, incredible. And then well, I want to talk about the roles you did in, in Boeing and then uh, Albert and um, uh, Tellers as well. Tell, tell us, is it? Yes, tell us. Yep, tell us. Um, yep. As well. But before we jump into those, um, you mentioned there you were kind of involved in aviation through the army a little bit. Have you got any interesting stories you know, some, some really out there stories that you did from your army days involving aviation. Uh, I, I see maybe you were, you got deployed in a few different locations, but was there something that stood out for you in your experience in the army there? Oh, there were a few. Um, you know, for example, as a young lieutenant in, in Townsville, I, I was part of a communications unit up there and we had some pretty adventurous soldiers and, and they used to do things like laying uh, communications line from helicopters where they would actually strap... Um, you know, rods to the to the skids on mainly Iroquois and Kiowa, and then they'd lay line kilometres worth of telephone cable across the top of the canopy using a helicopter, and uh, and watching them do that was fascinating. I, I used to do a lot of reconnaissance in helicopters where we'd be sent out to look at potential communication sites and how we'd get in and get out um, in the light observation helicopters, and always loved that. That was great fun. Um, I did a little bit of time. There were uh, we had a, a direction finding kit in Porters as a technician at Seven Sig. I got to go and have a look at those, of, you know, a few times, and um, that was very clunky old technology, but it worked. Um, so you know, flying around in the old Porter. Then then on UN operations overseas, we spent a lot of time in Russian equipment, actually flying around in Mi-17s uh, and uh, An-26s, um, and we had some pretty interesting times in those I, I think they're some of the hardiest aircraft i think i've ever seen i, I, I remember seeing uh, you know uh, i think he was a ukrainian actually um air crew wailing into the top of this this helicopter with a hammer because he was having some problem with it we're all looking at it you know terrified thinking our air force would never do that and off we went and there was another time of sitting in a sitting in one of these things with uh, one of the sergeants who was with us and it was spewing this just pumping smoke out so badly actually that the airport fire brigade turned out to have a look at it 
and I'm tapping this Russian crewman on the shoulder and saying, you know, what's that? And he just looked at me and said, dirty fuel. And we turned around and we took off anyway and flew oh, off, yeah. you know. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, in Sumatra, I can remember catching a ride on a couple of different countries, C-130s, to, to move around the, the island there. Um, yeah, a lot of, just a lot of travel on on whole bunch of military platforms it was um and they're really you know it's quite something to be part of that you know to, to be on those things and and just doing a job where you're moving around in that sort of uh in that sort of way was it hard you know setting up your career and you spent a long time in the army um you know from what i've read around 25 years so it's a, that's a long time to do to commit to one uh career uh, and one employer i guess um was it hard to then come out into the non-military world and and find your your new role in in a well, well in any role. Look, that to me, there's two parts to that question. The first one was the transition. I did find the transition hard. I mean, anyone who knew me in the army would know that um, I, I was a very green guy. You know, I was the army all the way, and I never saw a career outside the army when I was in it. You know, to me, you were in it, and that was it. That's what you did. And if I was ever going to leave the army, it would be retirement and, uh, you, you know, not doing much. But then it happened and it happened very quickly and I wasn't ready for it. Um, it was one of those moments I had where I can remember looking out the office window going, I always wanted to be a lieutenant colonel, now I am one, now what? That sort of came on the same time as uh, the potential that my next job would mean moving my family again and my youngest uh, daughter was in her sixth school going into grade wow. seven. Uh, you know, and my my uh, eldest daughter was the same going into grade eight. And it was it was enormously difficult, particularly for them moving around all the time. You know, you can just imagine kids in their friendship groups and you're breaking them up all the time. And, you know, my wife, who's a professional uh, lady, you know, I had been moving her career all the time. It's very difficult for her to get established and do something. And we just just sort of hit me, you know, I can't do this anymore. I have to stop. What am I going to do now? And for someone who hadn't spent any time thinking about that, because that's all, all you thought about was the army, uh, it, was quite a, it was quite something to really, you know, confront. But I, you know, I must admit, I've had an enormous amount of luck in this uh, over time. I say to people, you know, it's not always something you plan. Sometimes you can be very lucky. I had, um, uh, I had a I had a couple of people who knew me from the army who were in Boeing, uh, who'd seen me on a couple of different programs. Who, who, I'm not even sure how they found out that I was about to leave and go on long service leave while I had to think about things who rang me up and said, you know, they had a they had a particular program running for the Army's battle management system and was I interested in coming out and working on that with them? And uh, for me, that was sort of an instant lifeline because, you know, you're, you're thinking, well, what am I going to do now? And suddenly you've got someone who says, well, come on out and we'll, you know, we'll pay you and, and, and here's a job. So I went to Boeing to get involved in Land 200 and I met a few other army guys were getting out at the same time. We all sort of arrived there at once, and uh, and Boeing had a very strong program running into the army at that point in time. So we had a good position there. And I, I will say this about Boeing as a company: it provides it provides fantastic training to the people who are in the company. And so we we did a number of courses there on you know new business development and project management and. Uh, 
um, you know, there's a whole series of things, you know, um, uh, sales techniques and things like that, which allowed you then to start to step your way out. And I, I was at Boeing for about four years, I think, and started to step my way out. And I had a couple of fantastic mentors while I were there. Um, a, a guy there by the name of Terry Brown, who'd been the, uh, he'd been the head of BD at Boeing. He sort of took me and a couple of the other guys under his wing to teach us a lot about the sales process and how to work in business. And I learned an awful lot from him. And another guy by the name of Chris Smith, who actually is now on our board at AI, I've, I've sort of stayed in touch with Chris, who'd come out of the Navy. And, and uh, these guys invested a lot in their people. And, you know, I was one of them and, and was the beneficiary of a lot of the training from them. Uh, and that helped a lot in the transition. But I, I think it took me five years. I think I was at Boeing, five or six years. I was at, uh, sorry, I was at Talus by this point, where I suddenly felt like I'm actually now out of the army. It took that yeah, long right. to wow. sort of get it out of your, get it out of your system, get it out of your head, because yeah. it, it it does breed a particular way of thinking. Yeah. yeah. Was was that way of thinking good for those jobs that you went into? Oh, it's enormously good for those jobs, but it, it it's different to what you're used to. I mean, you know, um, uh, the the army, and I will say, you know, it's very you have to be careful here to talk about the army because everyone's army. <laughs> I don't want to get shot different. down here, Dan. I don't think you're right. Okay. No, I know. But what I'm saying is, you know, everyone, everyone's experience in the army is very different. You know, army was very. There's a lot of things to a lot of people, but I, all I can say for me is it was a launching pad for for my career and and life, and and I was very lucky in there and had a great time. You know, I gave the army everything it gave it back. You know, in spades. So, so I had a great time. Um, when I got to Boeing, you come with a work ethic that's very different. You know, in the army, there's sort of sort of no start and stop to the day. You get up in the morning, there's a routine. It's a vocational thing. You know, you you get up, you do your morning routine, you go to PT, you come back to work, you work till the job's done, then you go home, then you get and you do the same thing again. And when you're in the field, it's it's sort of 24/7. You sleep when you can, and you bring that to your work environment. A lot of people used to look at the army guys, you know, and they'd be saying, "We're still doing here." Some will still work. There's still work to do, you know. Yeah. Um, and and the trouble is, is that in you can lead yourself to burnout because in the army that used to do that in sprints on very particular things. If you do that endlessly, you suddenly find you burn yourself out, and that, and that was one of the things that a few of us had to guard ourselves against early on. And then and the other one is is the order. The army comes with, you know, it has a hierarchy and it's a very orderly way of thinking and and uh, and of business and and it has a it has a very deep hierarchical structure. And what I've found in industry and business is that those hierarchies aren't always there, and a lot of companies tend to be quite flat in their structures. You know, they might have a couple of a couple of levels of hierarchy, but nothing in the same level as a military organisation. Uh, and you know. You, you learn to speak in a different way. You know, the, the military, you, you learn to speak in a very direct way, which which can be quite confronting to people who aren't from the military. So you have to adapt your style and take time to, to um, yeah, just adapt to the environment that you're in. So, and then once again, the Army teaches you how to do that as well. I mean, it, it, it was something I just found, a, it took me a while to, to think differently. Yeah. The other thing in the Army also was it was always a massive organisation behind you. Every time you did anything, there was always, you know, you always knew there was a there was a whole sort of organisation behind you that had your back when you were doing something. It's not the same when you get out in the commercial world. You know, you, you can often be out there on your own and it can be a pretty lonely place, but uh, you get used to it. And, and yeah. 
you know, people do well in it and um, and it comes to then your interpersonal relationships and how you build them. So, yeah. you know, I had a great time with the Army. I really did. I mean, it, it was it was an enormously, um, you know, satisfying and, and I had a wonderful career and I still got a lot of great mates from my entire time throughout the Army. Um, but I'm in a different life now, and and that army is it's a different place now. The army today, the army of today is a, it has many of the attributes of the army of yesteryear, but it's a it's a different place now. So, yeah, and right. it, and each each cohort sort of owns it for themselves, if you know what I mean, on the way through. It's a yeah. yeah. So mate, you moved on to some other jobs where you took on some pretty big roles, from what I can read. You know, like managing director of uh, Albert Systems of Australia. Um, for over six years, can you tell us about what some of those roles that you you had to do at a big company like like that? Yeah, so um, it, you know, I had a role leading the combat systems team in Boeing, and then I went to Talos, and I was involved with the support systems group there, and set up their uh, new facilities in Brisbane for the support of the Bushmaster and the Protective Vehicles Program, uh, and then um, went into Elbert as part of actually initially their support environment, but. Uh, there was a change in leadership that the the um, company wanted, so I was um, asked if I'd be the MD there, which I, I took on, um, at a time when the company was just getting its feet under it in Australia and uh, working to become uh, very much an Australian subsidiary, which which and it's gone on to do very well at that, uh, and the new MD is doing a great job of that. Um, it was. I found it intensely rewarding, but also, you know, again, another quite difficult job trying to interface an overseas parented company into the Australian market, and with all the cultural thing that's come. So I've worked for the American company, a French company, an Israeli company. They're all, in many ways, those big internationals are the same, and in many ways, they are very, very different, and they each bring their culture of their country with them. They all had quite different sort of cultures. Uh, I really enjoyed the last one. You know, one thing I'll say about the Israelis is that, you know, they're the most pragmatic, inventive, artistic group of people I've, I've come across and, and what they can't do with technology, you know, it's not worth doing. I mean, they're amazing to watch that that sort of ability to do that. Um, you, you know, then you had the, the, the French company had its own sort of very... Uh, connected way of going about business with with you know the other companies that were around it and uh, and it also had a lot of roots into it from the old Australian government defense factories and then Boeing uh, which was a highly process and quality driven organization so they they each had their own flavor but for me the one at Elbert you know that was a that was involved on the land 200 program very difficult complex technology program um, trying to trying to match a complex engineering delivery, software engineering delivery to an Australian project management organisation is quite difficult, particularly when the project management doesn't always sort of flow along the same lines as a as a complex engineering project does and, and trying to bring those two things together. Yeah. Um, that was difficult, you know, but, but, but again, you know, it's about the people you have on it. And the people that you face and i found in each of those companies once you've got the right team around things the right team of people with the with a good plan and and the motivated to do it can pretty well pull off anything yeah right. so uh, uh so that that's one of the things i really hope to bring to this ai role is the ability to create the right team to do something that's really difficult yeah 
Yeah, well, mate, it's, it, it goes to show you've, you've got a lot of experience in these in these high-up roles, you know, managing director, vice president. Um, it sounds like you are the right guy to lead AAI, you know, forward in the next kind of phases of its, you know, of its programs and how it all sets up uh, from here on. So why don't we jump onto AAI now and um, talk a little bit about how it all started. I know you weren't there from the start, but can you share a little bit of light into how the company started and when it started and, and you know, take us back to the start there. So, so look, I'll do the best I can because really um, Kwa Huang, who's who's the uh, guy who set it up, uh, he's the guy who really needs to take the credit for a lot of that. He really, you know, it's really quite a vision that he's put together and I'm very, very pleased to be part of it. Um, uh, Kwa, he's um, a, a, a guy of Vietnamese heritage and was involved in uh, aviation out of Vietnam um, on a program to uh, get UH-1H parts sort of centralised from what a lot of what was left behind, the inventory that was left behind in, uh, in Vietnam after the war, and and then turned that into a program which got a lot of that, those parts sort of secured and back in into the US, but also into a program back into Vietnam to put UH-1H to action there. Um, He's the guy that sort of sat back and was looking for a program with a niche product. And again, you know, this is where a bit of luck or karma comes into it. It happened to be at a time when um, Grumman put out the type certificates. They decided they were going to sell them off. And uh, Qua happened to, I'm, I'm not sure how he heard about it, but he heard about it and it was a tender type activity. He put a team together and went in and managed to secure those type certificates uh, through a process in the US, um, I, and and I'd, he would really need to talk you through the ins and outs of all that. I'm, I'm though I've heard it a few times. I'd hate to get it wrong, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. and, you know. And it was, I've got to say, the fact that a guy like him was able to do that is a testament to his creativity. I mean, it really is quite something when you think about it. Um, and he secured the, the secured the type certificates for all of the models of the HU16 and the G111, and and that's. That's really the core of the the uh, the business now is the is the value resident in that aggregated IP for this particular platform. But but he'd seen the need in Southeast Asia in particular for servicing you know remote areas in Southeast Asia or even high uh, high volume areas where they just couldn't get the type of transport they needed to move people and stores to things like you know some of these um, high high value resorts or um, gold mines or islands where they haven't been able to put in runways because no room and things like that. And and he had that idea and then went out and secured the type certificates and then started to have a go at setting up. Now, um, initially, he attracted uh, an engineering company. He decided he needed to get an engineering firm, which is how he got hooked up with Five Rings out of Melbourne. And he has a business partner in Greg Hanlon down there that, that sort of helped the next stage of getting the company sort of starting to think about how it would do this program. Uh, and then he, you know, brought on a, a you know, some a finance, a small finance team to help him with that. And they've had a run at a couple of places in Australia, but uh, the luck just wasn't with them in those. You know, um, I think the most prominent one that people would read about was at Warnervale in the Central Coast in New South Wales, where um, there were two councils originally, the Wyong Council and the, um, I'll get this wrong. Uh, no, it's gone out the side of my head. There's another. There was another council will come to me in a minute for sure. Um, those two councils uh, 
operated independently and it was it was in the Wyong uh, Shire that the airport for Warnervale was and they had a whole plan to actually extend the airport, put in a, a, a aviation industry zone and uh, uh, this, the whole council was sorted up. It wasn't popular because it was an environmental area. Uh, there was a Warnervale Protection Act and all sorts of things in New South Wales which, which made it difficult. And then when these, uh, Gosford City, that's what I was thinking of, when Gosford and Wyong merged, uh, the new council created, which calls the Central Coast Council, decided that they would not proceed with that airport development plan. And as a consequence, cancelled all the leases and had to walk away. And it was pretty politically messy at the time. And the, and uh, AAI was a bit of a casualty of the political fallout around all of that. And there was a lot of bad press and uh, you know, people from the side that didn't want the activity were undermining it and, you know, they were accusing it of being a Chinese front and all sorts of things. Um, so that that didn't go particularly well. And it was about, it was just not long after that that I actually met Kwa in my job at Elbert because Kwa was looking for a, a set of um, payloads for the aircraft that were for places where US technology wasn't appropriate. So he's looking for another company capable of providing those sorts of systems and Elbert was one. So we got together uh, and I could see the, the value in this program straight away talking to him. So we hooked up through Elbert and I um, said, well, look, why don't we have a run in Queensland? So we had a go in Queensland and we had a three year process there, which term sort of resulted in getting to a provisional uh, offer from Queensland government. We were going to go to Maryborough which would have been a great location as well. Great people in Miraburra and Harvey Bay, but um, we didn't have an infrastructure partner there and it was still a pretty high bar to leap over. And it was right at the end of that when we were starting to make our decisions to proceed there that I got approached by the Northern Territory Government to come and have a look up here and had a chat with Quire about it and we decided we'd have a run. So uh, we, I came up and visited and um, following that, we put in an application for the local jobs fund and that was only at the 26th of January last year we put that application in and the government promised us as as one of the findings of the Turk the, the Territory Economic Recovery Commission report that they would give us an answer within 90 days yes or no so uh, they did it they actually they put us through the ringer they, they did a full due diligence on us they got uh, Pricewaterhouse in with their aviation experts and and uh, they went through all our material and at the end of was right on 90 days I said uh, the cabinet met and said yes we we intend to proceed with your local jobs fund application so um, to us that was a that was a, a real signature you know move or a, a trigger that showed us that the NT was serious about actually doing this so we decided we'd go all in and we cancelled our activity in Queensland and then uh, followed through on the on the rest of the due diligence with the government and they worked very hard at it. We were really, you know, we really went through the ins and outs of it all with them, demonstrated what we were doing. We, we had to put in a lot of very detailed plans and the government said, um, okay, we're going to do this. We arrived at, uh, at a term sheet fairly early in the year and then we adjusted it in December and here we are now with the, the first, uh, first money coming into the account, you know, this week. Yeah, incredible. So it, it does does kind of show that you know AAI is still really at that uh, foundation level, aren't they? They're setting up this business in uh, hopefully getting their feet secure in Darwin here and, and starting to set up this business. Um, 
But you guys do already have an albatross, don't you? So there's one albatross still down in Melbourne there. Can you tell us a little bit about how you acquired that and and what the plans are with that aircraft? Sure. So we actually have two in the company. And, okay. and again, um, I, I'd hate to get this wrong because Qua did that. Uh, he he um, secured those two aircraft. He's got one in the US, which doesn't have any engines on it. They were uh, He donated those to one of the people who helped him on the program working with who already has an albatross, um, and uh, and then he bought NMO, which is VHNMO, um, uh, in, which is in Melbourne, uh, sitting at Avalon. It's been there for a while, actually. Um, NMO is actually almost in flying condition. It needs a bit of restoration to get it to flying condition, and that's part of what we intend to do now. And the aircraft in the US, which we'll bring out, I can never remember its tail number, that will become the target for the modification program for the STC. Now, we have a long way to go to get there. So, you know, I'm, I spend a lot of time tempering expectations. You know, as you quite yeah. rightly said, we're very early in this and there's a lot to do. Uh, you know, we need to attract the right team. We need to build the team that we need, the technical team. Uh, and, and I don't have that yet. Uh, and then we need to go through the process with the regulator of setting up an application and then going through the full modification program to get the STC. So there's work to do. And, you know, I'm being very careful not to go over-energising CASA too early um, before we're ready for them. So we need to do a lot of work to get ready. And then we'll go and do the, the process. Uh, so, you know, for all those who think this is sort of add water, have aircraft company, it's not like that. You know, we need to do the foundational work to build the company properly. You know, we're going into one of the most highly regulated industries in the world and we need to do the right things to set the company up so we can participate properly in that industry. So so our aim with NMO, first of all, is to get it back in the air and then fly it to Darwin. And, you know, we're you know, a bit tongue-in-cheek, we intend to do the what might have been tour up the east coast and uh, to fly it into to get up to, to here. How long it takes us to do that is a little bit uh, difficult to assess right now because we've got to do a survey on the aeroplane. There may be some parts that we need. Well, then we've got to dip back into whatever supply chain we can still find of parts. It's probably out of the US to find them. And with the, the trouble is there's a few vagaries at the moment around the international supply chain and getting things quickly. It's, it's difficult, but... Uh, hopefully, our plan is, is to try and spend about three months to get that back in the air and then fly it up, fly it up here. Yeah. That's our that's our optimal plan. If it looks like that's going to be too difficult, we'll take the engines off it and send them away for refurbishment, and then we'll pull the aircraft apart and we'll fr we'll ship it up a different way, probably by sea. Yeah. Uh, but our preference is to fly it up, and the one out of the US is very much the same. You know, we'll. we'll we're going to have to pull out a bit and and uh, send it over by sea. So there's a bit of work to do to get that, but we're starting those activities now. So you know, in Melbourne, we've got to find a hangar. We already have uh, Five Rings already has the, um, the the certification to do the work, but they need to get they need to reactivate that with a facility. So there's a bit of work to do to get that done. So tell us about what we're going to see in Darwin as such. So you know. As I mentioned, we've just started getting the money in the account. For example, I, I say we as in as not I'm yeah. involved in. Yeah. <laughs> yep. AI started as, as an NT yeah. person. Exactly. Involved in as a big supporter, mate. As a big supporter of this project, <laughs> um, you know the money's coming in. Uh, we can start 
the ball rolling with some of these projects. What are we actually going to see in the territory? How's how's this going to look in five years' time when we when we you know are all set up and and this is running? So, so if I'll step through it gradually, what we'll see is at the outset we'll see first of all a, a hangar being constructed at the airport, which will become our we're calling it the R and D hangar to start with, a research and development hangar, but it's really the modification hangar where we'll have a, a, two, a, a hangar capable of taking two albatrosses. You know, they're not little aircraft. I mean, a 29-metre wingspan and a, you know, a 9-metre tail. It, it needs a fairly largish hangar to put two in, so we're going to build that first. And we'll do the STC program in there and, and most likely do some restorations of a couple of older aircraft in there afterwards. So that's sort of step one. And we hope, to, depending on when we get our... Um, primary investor on board, which, you know, that's something we can talk about later, but hopefully it's not too far away. We've, we've got a few at the table now. Um, we'll kick off the construction of that at the airport. You know, we have to wait till they're dry anyway. Uh, if you talk to the, the the team out at Airport Development Group, who, are, who I will give a real plug, they have been fantastic uh, in helping us. Uh, they can't really start getting concrete down till May. Uh, yeah. You know, so, so we'll we'll start construction of the with any luck we'll be starting construction of the hangar by then. And once that hangar's up, uh, again I'll have I'll at least have one of the aircraft here, and uh, we're really trying to get the one out of the US because I'd I'd rather pull apart I'd rather modify one that you know we don't have engines on at the moment than pull apart one that's flying. Um, and then we'll start the supplemental type certificate program, but there's a bit to do in the lead up to that. We'll, we'll be, first of all, creating the, the partnerships with the companies. Now, uh, over the next couple of weeks, there'll be some announcements coming out of the Northern Territory Government about um, an, an advanced manufacturing precinct at the airport. We're pulling around us a group of companies that will help us with the Albatross. So you would have seen the public announcements on Dassault or Dassault systems, uh, very much on the data systems and the digital systems underpinning manufacturing and engineering for the for the aircraft and support and sustainment. Um, we have another partner that we're shortly to bring on who's already manufacturing this type of aircraft, who, who are very keen to be uh, working with us on on bringing this one back to life. We have, a, we have Heat Treatment Australia, who are looking to bring a, um, a, a furnace to Darwin for heat treatment and metal parts, and they'll be our landing gear partner. Uh, and then there's a couple of aviation engineering agencies and companies that will come with us along with some people from Five Rings. And we also have to then create the rest of the ecosystem that sits around building an aircraft. And if you think through everything, you know, this is why I always, I, I sometimes tend to not want to look at the whole thing because it's a bit like, you know, the, the eating the elephant analogy. If you, if you look <laughs> at the whole elephant, you never do it. But you have to do it a mouthful at a time. But we, we need to create that whole supply chain and that whole group of companies. And we're a long way into that now. Those public announcements will be starting over the next, you know, few days and weeks you'll see some very big ones about the companies around us. So we've already announced Pratt & Whitney, for example, as our engine provider. You know, having the world's largest turboprop manufacturer with the with the background to that company saying that this is a worthwhile project for them to be involved in, who've been with us for quite some time now, six years, I think, all up. Uh, that's really quite something. You know, they see it. They've done their own market survey and say that this is a valid program with a solid market. 
and then Dassault uh, Systems, again, another, you know, tier one international company um, who also see this, uh, you, you know, We've got we've got a really strong team, Team Albatross. We're going to call it, coming together to actually pull that pull that in, um, and we're looking for you know there's a, there's quite a few people coming out of the woodwork who've been involved with this aircraft in the past, who we're also looking at wherever we can find the expertise. We will we're looking to make the most of it because you know it's not something that's broadly done in the international community at the moment at the air transport category level of certification for flying. Uh, that was a long rambling answer to a question I've forgotten, mate. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I've also forgotten, mate. You've, yeah, it just shows that there there is a lot of work done already, but also a lot of work to do in the future, mate. And and you know, hats off to you for just working the way you do. I mean, I get stressed out when I've got to do the dishes and the washing. I mean, <laughs> and you've you've got all this stuff ahead of you that you know, and and just to continuously be out there plugging it and spending so much time on it, mate. You know, hats off because. This is a big. It is a big dream, isn't it? It is a big. It's going to be a big push to get this this thing to see our first turbine albatross get off off the ground. It is dead, and look, you know, thank, thanks for the voter support because that's that was what we were talking about. What else is going to be in Darwin? So after that, we're then going to build a whole factory. So at Darwin, you know, Darwin Airport, there's already a, there's already some plans on on how this precinct will lay out. And if you think through it, there'll be the the R and D hangar, then the assembly lane. We're looking at an assembly lane. Uh, to be assembling a number of aircraft a year, and, and we're hoping to get that to a sort of static rate of 12 through a, through a single lane. Uh, you know, there's a, a paint shop will re be required, a structures factory, a, a landing gear factory, uh, an avionics um, centre. Uh, that's just to, to sort of put the aircraft together. There'll be a few more components to that. So you, as you can see, it's more than just one building. It'll be a series of uh, buildings. We've also need to then think through the whole training system because we'll we'll be offering uh, pilot training for this. It's a new type, you know. It's not a new type, but it's bringing back a type that will need to recreate the training system before we can actually push that out into the areas where the users and the operators have it. So we actually have to recreate the whole training environment. So we'll have a training system we're setting up here that will involve level D simulation. Uh, and we're, you know, we'll be looking for partners. We have a partner already capable of it, but we'll probably put a team around that. It's a big job again. You know, certifying a simulator is almost as difficult as certifying an aircraft. Uh, and then we're looking to expand our training centre down to Bachelor. So Bachelor's where we'll do most of the operational flight work and the flight test work will be done out of Bachelor. And then water operations. We're looking at Bino Harbour at the moment, but we may we may find ourselves in Darwin Harbour. There's a lot of work to do yet on actually securing that location. We want not just water that where we where we can put it on the water and get off again, but we we'll also want a, a ramp so we can practice coming in and out, ramping the aircraft. Um, you know, there's there's quite a bit to set that up, and uh, and and what I will say is not one guy is going to do this. This you know I'm not Superman. My um, <laughs> my underpants are firmly on the inside of my trousers. <laughs> We, I'll be pulling a team together. As we start to ramp into this now, it's about building that team and getting the experts in who can develop those systems, you know, getting a chief pilot, getting a chief engineer, getting a head of manufacturing. These people have got to come on and then do the work to start to develop what those things are going to look like. We have it in concept at the moment, which is needed in order to attract investment and government support. But the actual detail that sits under each one of those lines of, 
of operation inside our plans needs to be developed by the experts that we're going to bring on and the teams that we'll bring on to do that, which is why it's a, a fairly sequential process about, you know, do this initialization phase and then do the recruiting phase for the various parts and then do the STC program and then, you know, the, then the readiness for production, which is why it will take us four or five years to get out to that stage and that's, that's racy. Yeah, that's that's full on, mate. Um, do you, you talked about the manufacturing process there and, and having those kind of set up of, you know, the, the the main hanger and then the paint shop and then you know the gear and and blah blah blah. Do you look at any other companies for inspiration to set that kind of stuff up, or you know, or how other companies may build their own aircraft that are out there currently doing this to help with that setup of 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 that um, prototype or that. What you've got on paper there at the moment? So most definitely. So, so uh, during during when I was in the army, we did a, a technical staff course for a year, and one part of that was a visit where we went to we actually went to the Bell factory and saw the you know saw Bell helicopters being built. We went to Boeing, saw Osprey. Um, so I've had a I've I've and I'll, you know we visited Boeing factory. Um, so I've I've had a bit of an exposure there initially. So that so I had a very loose idea in my mind. Then I started to study some very you know YouTube's a great thing. There's a number of because remember all this was set up during the COVID pandemic. Yeah. So a lot of it's been done in a rather darkened room, uh, trying to <laughs> think through all this and talking to a lot of people. Yeah. But but having a look at how these other companies do it is definitely what I've been doing to try and gather that information. But it's only the concept. That's why I say it's it's about getting this other partner that we'll make the public announcement soon, for example, who is already an aircraft manufacturer on board to help us in the design and the building of that. So I can give the general parameters of what we think it looks like at the moment. But until we change. get that, yeah, that that is, I can only promise you one thing is that it will change once the experts come in and we actually then do the detailed design on how we're going to do that. That that will change. But I would say that we have it, we have a concept that says, the hangar needs to be roughly this big, and it's largely designed derived by the size of the aircraft and a whole series of stations that would put the thing together. Yep. So um, it is, as I say, it's a concept only at the moment. And bringing in a company like Dassault or Dassault, who've got aerospace experience with their aerospace wing, their aerospace arm in Europe, you know, they deep have deep roots in the construction of aircraft. And this systems group, which sits beside them, who do a lot of the 3D digital data, the 3D systems that sit on the data systems that sit underneath that manufacturing, they can bring their expertise to it as well and combine those together. I'm sure we'll pull this together as a as a very different looking concept to one I've put together. But I needed to be able to give people something. You know, you can't. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you you've got to you've got to have some view. So so I did study very deeply how a couple of aircraft were put together, like the Dash Eight, which I thought yeah. was was a, a reasonably good, um, aircraft, yeah. you know, com- comparable aircraft, not an amphibian, none, but but similar in size and complexity. Uh, when you looked at the, you know, the engines and the and the scale of the aircraft, um, it's a bit bigger. But but I I, I studied very closely a number of uh, videos that they had online about how they went about it, and I've talked to a few people about how it's been done in in a couple of other companies. So. When I put all that together, I think we came up, we originally came up with the concept of that we would be an assembler and we would bring components from specialist, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing 
sections to the assembly plant. Where the real smarts is in those manufacturing areas, you know, like the structures factory. There's a lot of work that's got to be done now around designing how the structure will be actually fabricated and in what parts and in what order in order to then bring it into the assembly plant. Yeah. You know, uh, and then, you know, there's that whole thing about, well, it's first of all, all the quality systems and how you pull that together and the manufacturing processes to do it. But it's then the sequence in which the various systems get integrated to the aircraft. You know, when do you pull the wiring looms through, for example, and how's that done and, and how's it all checked? certified at each stage all that yet needs to be planned there's a whole there's a whole process to get a production certificate that has to be done with the regulator with CASA where we'll actually have to build an aircraft in front of them and show them each process each step you know going way back into the you know almost that well all the way back to raw material fundamentally to show how that how that quality system runs right through the manufacture of the aircraft in order to get the production certificate so you know, we've allowed a period of time in the in the schedule to get that done, but you know that's really in the hands of the production teams, yeah. and uh, that are going to design this, and and work together with the regulator to actually arrive at that. Uh, it's not a trivial job, no. and it's going to take quite a crew of expert people to come to that. You know, we because yeah. we're starting effectively a greenfield uh, with regard to that. We have the old data packs from the original manufacturer. But you're talking about an aircraft built in the 50s and 60s. Exactly, yeah. You know, the tooling systems and the capabilities of today are very different. But then there's a whole process then of how to certify each of those production steps to ensure that you're arriving at a a conforming part all the way through the process. So there's a lot to be done on that. And, yeah, I've got to get the team together that's going to help us design all that and make that happen. You mentioned earlier on Southeast Asia, and I guess that brings me to my next question of, who is the who is the target market for this aircraft once it comes out as a brand new, you know, brand spanking turbine albatross? And and so who are you aiming this this aircraft for? So so, so one of the brilliant things about this, and Qua will tell you this. This is one of his favourite mantras: is this aircraft doesn't service just one market. It, it services a number of markets, which is which is one of the great things that sits underneath its business case. So the first one is you know if you if you think of the aircraft type or the variant. Um, which will drive you towards a particular discussion around markets. So if you talk passenger cargo, for example, so there's a number of markets. There's the markets for remote communities, uh, island communities that currently have to go by boat or um, very light aircraft off small strips where it's, you know, there's a there's a fair amount of risk associated with those activities. Um, there's a whole market around that. There's a market for... Uh, the luxury resort communities, particularly in a couple of places in quite a few places around Southeast Asia where you might land at the main international airport and then face a seven or eight hour duk-duk ride or bus ride or uh, boat ride to get to the resort. This thing can, uh, this aircraft will be able to very much shorten that and improve that experience for for the customers of those resorts and those places. And we've had quite a lot of approaches from that. Then there's the airlines looking for connectors to bring to bring people to the to the uh, you know the main hubs. So we're not we're not a competitor to the main aircraft types who fly airport to airport. We're flying airport to nothing. You know, so it's a, it, it complements the big player. It doesn't go head to head with them. Um, so it's so when you look at that market, there's the passenger cargo thing. Then there's cargo when you're looking at um, 
we've had everything from gold miners coming forward saying we want to be able to move gold gold from a from a mine where there's a river or a dam or a or you know, primarily a river or a dam um, where we can land over where currently they have to take it overland. So when you think of the security and the transport requirements in often remote places, this allows them to actually take quite a load, you know, and fly it, which reduces a lot of that overhead to, uh, to the to the main to one of the main centres. Um, there's uh, humanitarian uh, use for the aircraft, medical uh, evacuation and um, uh, treatment. So we've actually got variants of the aircraft. We actually have a treatment centre on the aircraft. It's big enough for you to actually have a full standing height, um, you know, operating theatre in the back of the thing or a medical treatment centre in the back of the aircraft. But it can also be kitted out with 12 stretches. So it can be used as an evacuation uh, system. If you look at the most recent thing in Tonga, for example, this kind of aircraft could have been to Tonga with capability where the airport was closed and still be able to land on the ocean and taxi up. You can land quite a long way off and taxi in as a boat uh, and, and present a capability very early. I, one of my, the jobs I did in the Army, uh, my last one of the last things I did was at the tsunami in Band Arche in 2004, where, the, where initially the airfield was damaged by the earthquake and, and, and it took several days before they could actually get the airport open again. This kind of aircraft would have allowed operations into there at a scale uh, very early on. You know, it took a US aircraft carrier turning up with, uh, uh, you know, effectively an air trainer helicopters to actually get air movement in there. But, you know, it takes time to relocate those assets to those areas. This sort of aircraft can be there very quickly. Yeah. Then there's the, you know, then there's a whole, of course, there's a whole series. It was originally a military aircraft, so there's, of course, there's a whole series of military applications. And then there's search and rescue. Um, you know, it's a great long-range search and rescue aircraft, you know, Tony Bullymore, the Rock and Robin, those sorts of those sorts of activities where this can be used. Um, Coast Guard, you know, it, its last role in the US, I think, was a Coast Guard role. So, so it actually services a military market, a, a government yeah. market, you know, a, a commercial market, and a number of different, you know, sub-markets inside that has quite a quite a wide range of utility. And because of the scale and, and the way that we intend to keep it a fairly simple aircraft, it's at the utility end of the market. It's not it's not at the, you know, the specialist, you know, we're not pushing it to be the, the all things to all people specialist end of the market. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I, I did another interview with a, a fellow who owns a, an albatross in the States, a private um, albatross, and some of the work he did actually was for the cyclone or hurricane uh, damage control, you know, in the Bahamas. And yeah. he would fly from um, Texas where it's based uh, all the way to Florida, refuel, and then they were doing evacuations or bringing in supplies to those areas where there weren't any runways so i mean there's still some of that activity being conducted by by private albatrosses uh around the world um which is which is pretty cool well it's a testament to the it's a testament to the design and the construction of those aircraft that they're still going when they really are robust it's a very robust uh, platform and the only thing to let it down these days really is the fact that the engines are obsolete you just can't get parts from them Mate, obviously, with with any new business that pops up like this, uh, I guess a very ambitious idea, and and like you said before, there's a lot of steps that need to come out before 
this aircraft is actually going to roll off the production line. And I think with with any business like that, there comes people who um, maybe don't speak as positively as we do about it and and as as excited and they might be a little bit glass uh, half empty type people who who have the negative comments that come out about it. I'm sure you've heard a fair few yourself in the role that you're in. But I wanted to maybe ask a few of those questions to you and, and give you an opportunity to kind of answer back to those people who have those type of um, concerns, I guess, about you know how this is going to all work out. Um, I guess the first question would be, you know, Grumman made thirteen G triple one albatrosses back in the late seventies, early eighties, and that was a time when, you know, Chalks was one of the biggest flying boat operators in the world. Why do you think when Grumman couldn't really sell the idea of the civilian albatross and, the, and the, even the turbine albatross, there was one turbine albatross converted which wasn't a success. Why do you think that you know after 40 years of Grumman, the original manufacturer of this aircraft, trying to, to reinvent it a, a bit at that stage itself, why if they couldn't do it, why do you think now is the best time for, for AAI to come out with this, with this ambitious project? I mean, it's, that is a great question. We get asked that one a lot. And it, it, look, it comes to we're in very different times. So first of all, you know, in the 40 years since that happened, Asia has fundamentally changed. There's the rise of a big middle class. The population up there has exploded. Um, you know, the, the, the land that was available to build runways after World War II, you know, you might remember after World War II, and this is quite a history. Oh, absolutely, since, yeah. When you go back to what happened after World War Two, and remember, flying boats were an enormous part of um, servicing the islands and the communities during World War Two. The Catalina, um, you know, was it was a um, ubiquitous aircraft. Australia actually flew them. They were flying out at Darwin up here, yeah. uh, and then there was the you know the, the short Sunderland, um, which was the the backbone of of actually international transport. Not long after the war, to and from you know um, Europe to Australia. And this was at a period of time when there was so much damage in, in Europe and, and other places. You know, the big runways weren't there. The aircraft weren't at the scale. We're only just coming into that scale. You know, they'd built those huge bombers that were capable of long, long legs and, and carrying a lot. And they started to convert those for long-range passenger transport. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a big shift to these sort of large aircraft, large airports, in a time when the populations were at a different level. With the rise of that middle class and the and the and the the boom in the population, where people are now living in places they weren't back then, uh, at, at a much larger scale, uh, it's a very different place than it was in the 80s. The other thing was, is I think back then a lot of people thought that helicopters and ships would replace would, would do the job of the flying boat, and that's that's been comprehensively shown to be not true. They can, but it's not a commercial act. It, it's something that defence departments and, and uh, governments can do, but it's enormously expensive and it's, it's, it, it doesn't have the same range, you know, not at the same speed. So we're seeing a lot drifting back. You know, there's a lot of militaries around the world right now and there's a lot of articles on the press about, you know, in the press about this at the moment of various countries looking to bring back the flying boat for this very reason. There's a niche that was never refilled. Okay. So actually, it was chalks. The thirteen that were done in the eighties were actually done as a modification. They weren't built from scratch. They were a mod done, believe it or not, by the one of Trump's hotel chains, 
to service their um, their market. And the issue for them was they weren't they weren't turboprop. They were um, they kept the old engines. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and look, it's, can't explain necessarily why those that didn't bite at the time. There are a few other things going on around the whole chalks activity as well with that company. It wasn't. Um, it's just a different time, I think. Yeah. All I can say is that now, with the inquiries that we're the inquiry load we're receiving. The work that we're seeing coming out of India on their on their seaplane, uh, their the re-emergence of seaplanes and seaplane bases, out of the Mediterranean, same thing. Lot a lot of new seaplane bases being built and wanting to go back to seaplane operations because it's it's much more flexible. Um, out of out of you know a lot of countries in Southeast Asia where they have issues with um, doing this you know sort of transport at the moment because they don't have the room anymore to just knock some something over, the rise of environmental concerns that come with knocking half an island into the ocean to build a runway, which which back in the 50s and 60s and 70s weren't the same issue that they are today. Yeah. Uh, all of that leads to an environment where it is now conducive to the flying boat. I mean, you know, we are getting, we're not doing this on the back of no market analysis. You know, we've had independent market analysis done that backs this up, mm. not just by us, but by, you know, Pratt & Whitney, for example, who've had a look at it. They wouldn't be in this game if they didn't think there was a solid market behind the engine sales for them. Yeah. They don't do this as a speculative activity. So, so it has moved a long way. Uh, and all I can say is, is that if people were to read the letters that we receive from the customer inquiries that explain to us the problems that people are trying to address with this aircraft and there's nothing that can actually do it for them now, yeah. shows that there's actually a market for this and it's sizable enough to warrant an industry restart to relaunch this aircraft in, in a form that's sustainable because that's the other thing is that the the old aircraft is no longer sustainable commercially. The engines are, are, are just well, not made anymore. They're too loud. They're too, you know, the fuel usage is what it is. You know, it's, it needs to be replaced and upgraded. Yeah. So here's an opportunity to do it. Oh, fair enough. You mentioned their expressions of interest, I guess. Um, have you had anyone who's put their foot down and, and said, we will buy certain amount of these or and, and put in deposits? Or when does that even start happening? Like... Do you have to get to a certain stage when someone will actually say, "Here's here's some dollars for a a deposit on some of these aircraft so that I can get them"? So, so the answer to that, in short, is yes. Anyone who wants to finance the aircraft has to have the certified aircraft to get finance for it. So, until we have the STC, it's very difficult for anyone that's financing their fleet to get finance to do it. So, um, we need the STC fundamentally before we can get. Uh, deposit paying orders from those sorts of individuals. Yeah, there are others, and and governments, for example, are very interested in this. But it's the same, in, you know, it's the chicken and the egg loop is what I yeah, is what yeah. I refer to it as is, you know, you want someone to put in an order for an aeroplane when you don't have a factory and an aeroplane in production. So you're asking someone to part with some millions of dollars as a deposit before they can see line of sight on a going concern in company. Yeah. And this is, the, this is the conundrum that we need to break. So that's why we've needed to find an impact investor who's prepared to invest in this based on what they've seen of the idea and the justification we can give them that says, yeah, this is valid. I'm prepared to put some money in up front to get you to the stage where you've got the STC so you can then open that pipeline of orders. 
Now, that said, we have enough letters of intent to show this, though. Companies that have said, if this was at the stage where you had the STC, we would buy them. Yeah. And we have we have a series of letters of intent uh, just in the last 12 months, for example, for companies demonstrating, you know, sort of up to about 30 aeroplanes, um, you know, where we can say, okay, not sort of, it adds up to about 30 aeroplanes, yeah. um, from companies that, that said, if this was available, we would buy it. And then we've got a... a, a inquiries for up you know that sort of represent over 300 aircraft from people saying well look you know they haven't gone quite as far as saying if you had it i would buy it but they're saying i've got a problem that would be fixed by this many airplanes if you see the slight shade of difference between a letter of intent and an inquiry letters of intent are a bit more formal an inquiry describes a problem and and we would be able to provide a solution for that yeah once i see it in action with other companies they'll They'll look at uh, maybe putting That's their right. money where their mouth is. Yeah. That's right, and 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 you know, look, some of them are some of them are using other aircraft to try and fill the fill the void at the moment, like the uh, the, the DHC six, you know, the Twin Otter, um, which again in its class is a very good aircraft, but it's not of the same scale as this. It's a float plane, and you know, for those who are the aficionados, there is definitely a difference between a float plane and a flying boat in the open water. Uh, environment so um, you know it's it's that it's that problem that we're trying to crack at the moment so no we can't sort of put a hand out there and say we've got orders for x number of aircraft at the moment because it's simply not the environment to do that we, we need to we need to show that we have the capability now if and this is where government becomes very important to what we've been doing and that's why the nt support you know getting the nt government on has been so important to help us break that chicken and the egg cycle, get us started so we can actually start to demonstrate those credentials to companies that do want to buy the aircraft. And that's and that's actually given a lot of confidence to potential investors. And we now have a couple of those in in a fairly advanced stage of due diligence on us to see whether or not they'll come forward and put money down. Another one is, I guess, in the manufacturing section. And I mean... Australia's doesn't have a good history in the last ton, probably decade of manufacturing companies, especially like let's say for example in the car industry, uh, we've had Holden, Ford, closing factories, um, and you mentioned just before that you're coming into one of the most highly regulated industries to start um, aircraft manufacturing. How, how do you tackle that issue, or what do you say to people who who raise that as a concern? You look, it's a legitimate concern in Australia. Um, but, but here's the difference. If you talk about most of the manufacturing activities that have been started here, a lot of them go to what I'd call uh, high-volume, low-value manufacture. So you make an item that is at a fairly low uh, sales price. You know, if you said like a car, you know, you're selling that at $50,000, um, you know, to buy a car. You have to make a lot of cars to make that viable. And you're in a country where there's 24 million people. So... There's a unless you're an exporter, there's a constraint immediately on your viability based on that market. And Australia always had to prop up its car industry until you know there was a deregulation done, and then we flooded the car industry, and it made it very difficult for the local market. And there's you know there's there's much more written on that than I can talk about. And experts all have different opinions on the value of the car industry. All I'll say is that 
in the industries that I've worked in, in, in you know, the defence industry, a lot of the engineers I used to talk to had their had their grounding in the car industry, and we really lost something when we lost that. But um, but but that's been the issue for Australian manufacturing in the past. Now the difference is, and the manufacturers that have had success in Australia are the opposite. They're high value, low volume manufacturers. So so the first thing is is we are very much in that model. We don't have to make many aircraft to make the business case close for having the factory. So we don't we don't have a volume issue and and it is, you know, and we have we have a large export market because we're not competing with a whole bunch of other people. You make a car in Australia, you're competing with car manufacturers all over Europe and the US and Asia. Yeah. In our case, we will be the only cert FAA certified f flying boat above 19 seats globally. Yeah. It's a very different it's a very different prospect for a manufacturing outfit that's doing that. Now, where our problem will, will come is about generating the longevity in that operation, which is not just the volume of orders, but then getting smart about what we do with that product, keep it relevant and, and developing and changing so that it, it stays viable and, and uh, marketable into the future. And we've got, we've got a bunch of things we want to do to it over time that will you know already in our plan on how we would do that but that's the difference between us and say the car industry and other manufacturing yeah. other of the other manufacturing environments it's the high value low volume prospect and yeah. you look at companies like Austell for example which has also been very successful as a as a shipbuilder same thing you know that they're not high volume but they're they're low volume but they're high value and uh, and they they fit a niche globally and they're doing very well and and Australia is capable of some really, really quality manufacturing, and in fact, we could get in, we could get into other places. But because of our geographic location, you then add transport costs and everything, in the same as we have in reverse. It's why you know the imports are always more expensive yeah. to go overseas. You know, so that's where those other guys, you know, who are trying to do the high value, uh, high volume stuff, really struggle to compete unless you can find a niche in the Australian market. Does that high value, low volume uh, platform raise issues with unit price per aircraft and, and potentially having a, an aircraft that is going to cost too much to be able to sell? So, so we've, we've actually done the modelling in great detail on our uh, price. We've tested that in the market uh, and we've been, we've been very successful with that with potential customers who've said, yes, that's very much in our ballpark. Part of our modelling has been to make sure that an operator who bought one of these using finance can make money. So, so it's very it's very important that we understand the full life cycle of the aircraft and what someone wants to do with it to make sure that when we model this, it's not just about our cost and whether or not you know the thing's saleable. It's that if we sell it at this price point, can the company that buys it make money off it? Because if they can't, you haven't got a market. Yeah, true. So, you know, and this is one of, again, one of, you know, Kyle's favourite points when he's talking to people. We've actually modelled that price point, and I actually did it independently myself, checked it against it, and did the full model uh, underneath it about, you know, if you bought one on a lease, how much the lease would cost you, you know, what sort of route would you have to fly, what's the, what's the, you know, cost per seat kilometre, how many, you know, what's the usage rate, how many legs would you have to, you know, hours, legs, everything, to see would this stack up. And it and it well and truly stacks up, 
as something that an operator will do well out of at the price point that we've set. So um, we're very comfortable with that. And as I say, we've tested that with a, with a number of potential customers and and it's been quite acceptable. Yeah, right. Um, another thing will be location that you're now setting those feet into. Um, now, from what it kind of sounds to me is like, obviously you've mentioned before that you need the government support there to, to help that chicken the egg scenario. So I imagine, and you've, you've tried this already, I guess, in the last six years as you've been trying to get your feet into certain airports around the country that are going to be suitable for this project and they haven't worked out for whatever reasons. Um, and the NT government's helped you out and you're starting to get your feet, you know, certainly uh, firmly planted in Darwin. There's some issues with Darwin though, isn't there? I mean, we are high humidity, high temperature location. Um, you know, only just a couple of weeks ago due to some floods, we had huge supply chain issues in supermarkets up here. Do you see some of those issues being Darwin, Air, or, you know, the location of Darwin itself as something that would be an issue for you down the in the future at all? So, so fundamentally, yes. In fact, one of the reasons why we didn't initially look at Darwin was that. But on balance, after we did the work on it, and we had to do the due diligence ourselves, we worked out we can make it work here. Now, there's a bit that sits underneath all of this, though. It's very important to go through it. You know, the first one is, is that government support is essential. Uh, what we found in the NT is a highly supportive government environment that's led us to get to a kickoff. So from that perspective, it's a highly progressive government. You know, it went through the Territory Economic Recovery Commission. Uh, when you look at the findings of that report and how they went about, you know, defining what the government needed to do to create economic activity here, it was enormously um, exciting for us to see that and it was something that we thought was, was um, an attraction that was one part of it, but there are many more layers to why the NT actually becomes suitable. Every single location we looked at has its pluses and its minuses. There's no one location that is perfect. You know, some of the locations, there wasn't quite enough room and the factory would have been constrained and we had shipping problems to get components in. In some locations, it didn't have the proximity to water, which meant that we had to go, you know, a long way away to get our water testing and water training done. Um, you know, in some locations, we couldn't find an infrastructure partner to help us, you know, cover the, the, the costs of actually building the infrastructure. We found that here in Darwin with the airport development group. We've got a partner here who's actually going to pay for the infrastructure and we're going to lease it back off them. That's an enormous amount of money out of the front end of the program. Uh, so, so, you know, you need to be clear at the outset there is no perfect location in Australia to build flying boats that's existing. You know, you needed an airport with the room on the airport to put the factory up where you weren't competing with a whole lot of RPT for the work that you were doing. You needed an airfield like that. Well, we've got that here in Bachelor for that for that work. Where, where we had the proximity to water, well, we've got that in here in spades in Darwin from pretty well anywhere, yeah. um, you know, and from even from Bachelor. Uh, you know, where where Darwin has its difficulties, yes, there's the humidity and there's some work we're going to have to do around the, the, the construction of the factory to deal with that. Um, the other one's workforce. Now, for again, workforce will be an issue in Darwin, but Darwin has a special migration zone for bringing in skilled workers. One of the things we want to do is we're not here to, to 
just use what's in Darwin. As much as we can, we will use what's in Darwin. We need to grow Darwin. So we want to pull in as many additional workers to Darwin as we can and start to grow the town because Darwin's got back to the problem I was talking about about um, manufacturing before. Because Darwin's only 180,000 people, and, and I'm sure someone's going to tell me I got that number wrong, but I don't think I'm that far out. No. Um, there's, there's a scaling issue to what services are provided in a town of that size. So by bringing more to the town, you can grow the town and then increase the services that are here. So that loop we're going to go through as we build the industry and the and the program up. And one of the things the government is trying to do through the Turk is is exactly that. So we're we're in lockstep with the government that's got the same problem that we're trying to solve as well. So that works. Um, the proximity to the, to the Asian market from here is fantastic. You know, we can we can fly to a lot of locations from here in aircraft delivery. Um, there's an existing flying boat capability here. So when it comes to landing zones, people seeing what what flying boats are doing, we're not we're not running into a complete, you know, zero start on finding those zones where you can operate from. Um, you, you know, it's not a it's not a complete. Well, we've never seen this before. How do we go about it? Uh, activity up here. Yeah, you know, isn't so, that funny so that, though? Isn't that funny? That's going to be potentially in the future. You know, Grumman Mallard turbines running out on the Paspali flying boat runs, and then over over the road will be Grumman Albatross, you know, turbine well, operating at the same airport. Yeah, it, it is. It is pretty amazing when you think about it to see that those two pedigree aircraft coming together in the way that they are. They will complement each other uh, on the way through, and I think. When we then start talking about flying schools and training new pilots and and bringing through the trades that will support both those operations and other operations that are here, this starts to create some real base to help develop that and actually secure employment base and things like that for a broader industry than just us because we're actually trying to grow an industry here. It's not just us. It's actually it's actually beneficial for a broader our suite of companies to need those trades. So you've got some diversity and employment for people as they grow through the industry. Um, but yeah, I think it's fantastic to see the Mallard and the Albatross. You know, the, here's the Mallard, the forerunner to the Albatross, being the forerunner to the Albatross here. I think it's, you know, it's sort of one of those circle of life kind of things. Yeah. Uh, I got one one other kind of negative question that I want to that I want to ask, and that I guess we mentioned before, you know, manufacturing for this aircraft finished what 60 nearly 60 years yeah. ago yeah, so i guess 60. yeah so i guess all the tooling um that was used for for manufacturing the jigs all that most likely doesn't exist unless you bought it with the stc which I'm, i really doubt you did um how are you going to overcome barriers like that i think you kind of touched on a little bit before as well but um can you shed a bit of light on that on that kind of aspect in in more the development of a new aircraft Sure. So, so first of all, we did get some of the tooling and jigs and the jig designs with the STC. We got the full data pack. So we, we do have the material behind it. But the issue with it is, you're quite right, it's 60 years since this aircraft was built. So the production processes and, and tooling are very, very different now to what they were then. There are some things that haven't changed. I mean, you know, riveting and things like, well, actually, even riveting, I think, it's probably even changed now, I can't think of it. But um, really, it's going to be quite different. And we're going to have to redevelop it. Now, we've teamed with another company that will be announced soon. 
that are specialists in making exactly that equipment for this kind of operation. So when we do the manufacturing design work, where we need the manufacturing engineers on, they're actually going to go through the, the technical data pack to produce the manufacturing data pack. That's the work that needs to be done. And again, I won't trivialise it. It's not a trivial activity. There's a lot to be done as we step our way through that. But there's a lot to be learnt as we go through the STC program with the existing aircraft, as we start to bring some of that tooling and equipment back, even to go through the modification program. So we have a few years over which we will be able to start to redevelop that activity. Uh, and as soon as I can get that specialist team on, that's one of the early things that they'll be starting to look at is, you know, what's needed. Um, because it will change a little. Yes, the, the parts of the aircraft we keep the same, we'll need to find ways of doing that. But remembering we're making modifications to it, which by by their very nature will mean we'll have to change the manufacturing process to repeat that when we get to, to the new version. So, um, yeah, it, I'll be very much relying on some of the partner companies we're bringing in who have expertise in doing that. That's what they do for a living, you know, and, and we're talking about people who are in the F-35 supply chain, for example, uh, and in the Airbus and the Boeing supply chains who do tooling, specialist uh, tooling and jigs for those operations as well as, so they're the perfect people to be teaming with to be doing ours. Uh, and it's, yep, we have to go through that process and do that work and it's not done you know, it's not done now. Uh, I would, I would be uh, telling people porkies if I said that we were all set to go. We're not. We have to develop all that yet. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Well, Dan, I reckon, mate, you deserve a beer because um, this has been uh, an epic chat. I've absolutely loved talking all about um, this kind of stuff because it, it just it, it is at the it really is at the uh, at the growth stage, this business. But you guys have obviously thought about so many things that need to be done in the future there, and obviously you've got the things mapped out of it when they're all going to happen. Um, and you know, I'm super excited as well as so many other people out there are also super excited about the the news that the albatross will be coming to the skies again and reinventing itself, mate. So I'd like to really. Um, Thank you again for for sharing your time and uh, all the insights about how this business is is running. And I, you know, I really hope a lot more people are going to get on board this uh, this business in the future. So, Dan Webster from Amphibian Aerospace Industries, thank you very much for coming on the step. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Dan. It's been a pleasure to have a chat with you, and uh, you know, always keen to hear other people's points of view and and what they think about the program. And uh, whenever I hear something new, I always write it down and make sure we're addressing it. But uh, I look forward really uh, very much to bringing this aircraft back to life and, and seeing what we can do up here in the NT. So thanks for your time. Good on you, mate. Cheers. No worries, Dan. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks so much to Dan Webster for taking the time to share his own and also AAI's stories. I hope that you're all as excited about this as I am and that in the next few months, we start to see the next phase of the project come to fruition. Good luck, guys. Thanks again for joining me on the show, folks. And to everyone out there, I'll see you next time when we get on The Step.